Genesis chapter 6. We covered a lot of territory last week in Genesis 6, and for those of you who were here, we covered in the first eight verses uh, the Nephilim, which is a controversial portion of Scripture uh, undoubtedly. Uh, There's uh, some theologies uh, of which I, I adhere to. The involvement of the supernatural in our lives should not be a a mystery to us, right? I mean, for those who are born again, whose faith is in Jesus Christ, wrap yourself around this thought for just a moment. God the Spirit lives in you. He dwells in you. He tabernacles in you. And the person sitting next to you, who, if they're born again, who was born again, I'm assuming, he lives in them also. That's that's a divine encounter. We we are invaded, and we, in this natural body, I transcend into the supernatural, and God the Spirit dwells in me. He transcends the natural, and he takes up residence in me. That's absolutely miraculous at the end of the day. And so when we look at a portion of Scripture, which, again, we don't necessarily and cannot dogmatically say this is emphatically what we know has transpired, but when we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we come across the phrase, Bene Elohim, or the sons of God, and everywhere we see Bene Elohim, it's translated angels. Incidentally, we we referenced three of those places last Sunday night in the book of Job. Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, and I think it was Job chapter 38. And it's Bene Elohim, even in the third century prior to the advent of Christ and the birth of Christ, so in about 300 B.C., when Alexander the Great died, he divided his kingdom to four of his generals. One of those generals, Ptolemy, he collected up in his efforts to Hellenize the entire known world, he gathered together 70 of the world's leading Hebrew scholars and translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament. So from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to the prophets, so we have the Law and the Prophets, all the Psalms, and all of the 39 books that are contained in the Old Testament, they were translated from Hebrew into Koine Greek. And those translators translated Bene Elohim, sons of God, as angels of God. So when there's ever a question to what was being taught, one can go back to those who were actually the translators of the Hebrew to the Greek and from the Greek to whatever the translation is. And so those Hebrew scholars, they translated it into angels of God. So when we read here in chapter 6 that the sons of God had relations with the daughters of Adam, something supernatural is transpiring. And we 
we are given a glimpse of angels who did not keep their former estate, their former abode, their former house. And scripture throughout talks about these earthen vessels as our tents, and we're longing for our permanent home. That same word for permanent home is the one that the angels that were fallen, that disobeyed, they did not keep that body and engaged in some interaction with the daughters of man. There are those theologians who believe that there was a supernatural, satanic assault on the gene pool of humanity for the express purpose of thwarting the ability for Messiah to even come. And that's why we would find a little later in in, uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 where it says that Noah was perfect in all his generations. Some would interpret that because the word perfect there is the word that is used for without spot or blemish. A genetic term for a herdsman. Right? They are genetically sound. So the Passover lambs had to be without spot or blemish. They were genetically sound. They were without defect, if you will, without genetic defect. And so that's the same word. And so we could, one could say, well, Noah was preserved because his lineage, his gene pool was yet perfect in his generations. All other generations contaminated up to that point because of this involvement by the fallen angel. interpret those things, I leave that to you. It's the Word of God, and I, we can't just, the Bible tells us there is no private interpretation of Scripture. There are prevailing thoughts, and each one of them has their own anomalies that would make someone question, well, is that really what transpired? I'm not certain. So this may be one of those gray areas for you where you just go, you know what, I, I really don't know what transpired here, but I, I have enough trust in God. He does, he knows, and I'm okay with that. And that's where a lot of people just land. They just say, you know what, that's fine. But if you're here tonight and you say, you know what, I actually have some questions, or I have a concern, or I have a thought, and you want to share that, uh, I'll give you the floor for just a moment to ask a question, and I'll do my best to navigate. And if I can't answer your question, I'm going to say, I can't answer your question, and I'll do my best to have uh, an answer next week. Um, So does anybody have a question in relationship to the fallen angels? While you're maybe mustering up a thought there, let me also suggest to you, and if you're a student of the Word of God and you want to study further, you just want to go a little bit further in your study, there are excellent resources available. And some of those resources, and one in particular, uh, we certainly, we, I referenced Jude in the New Testament last week and the portion of Scripture in Jude 6 where he tells us of the fallen angels that did not keep their former estate. Jude quotes actually the oldest prophecy known. And it's a prophecy that was prophesied by the man named Enoch that we read about in Genesis chapter 5. And Enoch walked with God. Jude quotes one of his prophecies that is not anywhere contained in the Old Testament scriptures. Just like Paul the Apostle quotes Jesus in the book of Acts and says, For the Lord said, It is better to give than to receive. Well, I just 
defy you to try and find those words in the four Gospels. You won't. Paul was quoting Christ that we don't have record of that, but that was one of the things that Jesus said. It's better to give than to receive. And so we find that in red letters right in the book of Acts. Well, Jude also quotes Enoch and this prophecy. Behold, he comes with thousands and thousands of his angels in reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's certainly scripture. So Enoch, as a prophet of God, spoke the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit saw fit to have Jude quote that in his letter. And so we have that. Well, we have the book of Enoch. It is not scripture. But there certainly is at least one verse in there that is the word of the Lord. Now, we also know that if he was a false prophet, God would not quote him. We can have some assurances there. You can read the book of Enoch, and it's a worthwhile read. It's a worthwhile read. And in the book of Enoch, he describes the events of these fallen angels. So much so that he gives a total number of the angels. Remember, you and I know that a third of the angels were cast out, if you will, from heaven in Satan's rebellion. We read about that in the book of Revelation. With his tail, he took a third of the stars. Well, we don't know what the total number of the angels is or are in heaven. But we know there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands. There are many, many angels. So a third of them, well, there's a lot. The good news for you and I is there are more with us than there are against us. Someone say amen. That's good news. So, but let, okay, Lucy, so hang on just one second. So, so if the book of Enoch tells us the number of angels in this event, this initial event of disobedience, was 200. There were 200 angels that went astray. Whether that's biblical truth or not, because it's, it's extra biblical and it's information. Also tells us that there were 20 leaders of angels over those 200. Gives us even the names of those angels, which is very interesting because the majority of the angels even had the name of God in them. And so there, it's just, I find it fascinating. So all that to say, it's a worthwhile read and you can maybe gain a little bit more understanding about what's going on here. But these angels, after their disobedience and they were locked up in chains and they are there now and they're waiting presently, Peter tells us, in a place called Tartarus. Tartarus is part of the abyso or the abyss it's a chamber in the bowels of the earth far below Hades and this paradise which is now empty but anyway um, so there's some uh, there's some information there and we, we gain some information Lucy you have a question question was, the offspring between the two, the fallen angels and the daughters of men, what were their offspring? Their offspring were Nephilim. It's Unfortunately, the translation giant is not even a proper translation. They are the Nephilim, and the Nephilim comes from the Hebrew word Nephal, which means fallen one. The problem is, is when they were doing some translation, the word that was translated to Greek there looks like giants or gigantic, and so it was translated giant. Now, that being said, they were in fact giants. 
okay? They were extraordinarily large tigers. So part angel, part man, if you will. Uh, how big were they? They were big. Sorry, you're not a Nephilim. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing to be a, a, at least a, appraised of. Listen to what it does say. It says uh, in verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. So after the flood, there were also giants. Now remember, verse 9 tells us that Noah's lineage was perfect, so the giants didn't come from his gene pool after the flood. So there had to have been another occurrence of disobedience. And it's perfectly allowable, if you will, in terms of biblical context. Now then, that would explain the sons of Anak being Nephilim, Remember when the spies went into the land of Canaan and they saw the descendants of Anak there and they, the Israelites became as grasshoppers in their own minds and they said, there are giants in the land, we are but grasshoppers. Well, you know the story of Caleb and Joshua, right? They're like, no, we can take these giants and knock them down. But the rest of the Israelites gave a bad report and they said, no, we can't, there's giants there. And they were terrified, they were terrified. We know in the Philistine army, we certainly know of Goliath, and Goliath had brothers, and uh, Goliath was over nine feet tall. That's exponentially large. Uh, possibly, possibly. Uh, it doesn't tell us that directly. could be that there was uh, some lineage connection with the descendants of Anak and the Philistines and Goliath. Yeah, possible. Um, we also know of Bashan, which was one of the initial uh, takings, if you will, going into the land of Canaan, Og's bed was 13 feet in length. No one has to ask the question, why? And why did they take his bones with them as like a trophy? There's some interesting things to correlate, but at the end of the day, uh, I do think uh, we came to me, if they violated once, and after the flood they violated again, These there were angels that were put in prison, then maybe a second group that did it, and they were put in prison, what's to prevent, this is the question, the question, what's to prevent it from happening again? Well, I, think that's a, I think that's an appropriate question. I really do. But it very well could be happening right now, and here's, how, here's why I say that. Because Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we have the declaration of God to Satan, the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between thy seed and the seed of the woman, thy seed. In 2 Thessalonians, he's called the father of heads, the deception. The Antichrist is either A, going to be incarnated by Satan himself, or the offspring of Satan in some way. It could be the mimic of, quote-unquote, a virgin birth. He has, I, I like to say, habitually 
mimic God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see the old unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. Satan himself, the, the serpent of old. We see the false prophet, and we see the, um, what, am, what am I looking for? The false prophet and the, the beast, thank you. <laughs> the beast out of the sea. Yeah, so we have the beast and the false prophet. Thank you, Lord. There's three, there, there's three predominant theories. So the question again was, um, yeah, the sons of God. Uh, and so the text, again, when interpreting Scripture, what do we want to do? The best interpretation of Scripture is let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so three other occasions where the Hebrew phrase, bene Elohim, which is translated sons of God, is in the book of Job. At every other occasion of that translation, they are translated as angels. And so even the Hebrew scholars translated when they translated, and this is an interesting piece. Check this out. This is important to recognize. When the Septuagint, which is those 70 Hebrew scholars, translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, this is the Bible that Jesus used. Jesus used the Septuagint. that's noteworthy. We don't see Jesus correcting the theology. Well, no, these weren't angels. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. At least we don't have record of it. We actually have, there are four known copies of the Septuagint. We have one of them. But I mean, that's just not in existence, but I mean, we have access to it, right? And so, I mean, that's, that's significant. We have that piece. So, uh, most, Darren would say, in most theological schools and seminaries, it has for years been taught that this is the sons of Seth. And the reason they would interpret this as the sons of Seth is because there is a actually a, a portion of scripture that talks about uh, men uh, seeking, began to seek the Lord in these days. Uh, there's, there is another translation that says men began to profane the Lord in these days. And so the sons of Seth being, quote-unquote, the sons of God. Uh, recognizing that in the New Testament, we're called sons of God, right? Um, so some would say, well, this is, we're talking about people, it's the sons of Seth. But there's some there's issues associated with that view, just like there's issues with the view of the angels. But the predominant views are it was either the sons of Seth, and their statement is that they were having relations with the daughters of Cain. But recognize that's not what the text says. Because they could have just said the sons of Seth, but they didn't. The Spirit of God had Moses write it this way, and he called them the sons of God. So I think that's, that would be one thing, but it doesn't say sons of Cain. It says sons of Adam, sons of man. And so there's, there's thoughts. But So one view is the sons of Seth, daughters of Cain. Another view is the fallen angels having relations with the daughters of man. Another view is very, very similar to that, is that the angels forfeited their former bodies and embodied men and had relations and somehow crossed lines on a genetic level. Those are the three predominant. So where you land is, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, none of them are going to impact your salvation, number one. Number two, it's probably not going to impact in a great measure any of your theology and your understanding. 
us today that there's involvement in the supernatural realm. You know, don't be deceived. There's demons. The distinction between demons and angels is clear in Scripture. Angels have bodies. Demons seek habitation. They seek habitation. Okay? And that, that there's a distinct difference. Many believe the Nephilim after the flood and they were destroyed because they're neither man nor fallen angel, but they're a hybrid. They have no place to go. And so they continue to roam in the supernatural realm that we cannot see seeking habitation now. And that's what many believe would be the demons. And so uh, heroes of old is a translation of this portion, uh, Lucy, and it's really men of renown. Uh, these are the men of old, the men of renown. Renown would simply mean that they are something spectacular. They had some spectacular ability, and uh, th they did, just like we see Goliath had some spectacular ability. Uh, correct? Correct. Correct. Yes. Could transcend on a number of levels. Everybody hear that? Their supernatural ability wasn't just necessarily their physical strength, which they certainly had. You know, we see Goliath, I mean, just the head of a spear is coming out of his hand. So, I mean, he's hurling a spear that weighs 25 pounds at the front end. Uh, I don't know about you, I threw shot put, and I threw a 16-pound shot put. I couldn't throw a fixed ball, and that was 16 pounds. He's hurling a spear, a javelin, which is heavy, you know, so the brother had some strength. So I don't want to belabor this. Uh, we did cover it in detail. You can listen to last Sunday evening's uh, dialogue in relationship to this. Uh, but I just want, I, I, because there's folks here that weren't here last week, I wanted to cover that since Lucy introduced it. Um, we, we found four conditions on the earth uh, during the scourge. And let, let me say this also, um, because the scripture tells us that populations I referenced this morning, uh, those that do calculations for population growth, uh, they, they deal with factors such as war. They deal with factors such as uh, the death rate. But prior to the flood, there wasn't much of a death rate. People lived long. In fact, the average age was 912 of the record that we have, and that includes Enoch, whose numbers were down at 365, and it includes Lamech, whose numbers were at 777. So those are m low numbers, comparatively speaking, and still the average is 900 years. Um, so you, don't, you have nobody's really dying off. It would be an unusual thing if someone's dying, right? And so without a death rate and without much war prior to, you will end up with a very large number very, very rapidly if every... If Adam and Eve had five sons and five daughters, which incidentally, uh, Josephus, who again, uh, he is the scribe of the antiquity of the Jews, Josephus tells us that Adam himself, I think it says he had 76 kids. 76 kids, he and, he and Eve. Um, so we'll, we'll, narrow it down to, we'll narrow it down to 10. They had five slave childbearers, and they each married and which was okay back in those days. And understand the reason it was okay for a brother and a sister to marry is because the genetic defect 
because of the exposure to the sun and the UV rays was minimized at that point. They started off perfect, and so the genetic defect would not have caused offspring to have genetic issues. And so they could, but there's a point in time where God says, no more, you can't do this. And there's, he puts some prescriptions down for certain generations. You have to wait until you can marry within a certain boundary. All that to say, if the five boys marry the five girls, then each of them has five boys and five girls. And they marry, and each of them have five boys and five girls. And they marry, and then they each have five boys and five girls. It's exponential numbers. It's logarithmic numbers in reality. And by the time of the flood, if that is just the simplicity, and we take the average age of death at 900, and just a simple five and five, so ten kids each, by the time of the flood, it's 1,650, 1,655 years of mankind, 10 trillion people on the planet. That number is so massive compared to the 7.2 billion people that are on the planet today. And recognize that our growth rate right now is 75 million people being added to our population every single year. That's a small number because we have death rates so high and because we have war that will take life out, right? So all that to say, some most people would say, Ten trillion, there's no way. Well, there is a way, and it could have happened. Uh, and I'm a proponent there were a lot of folks on the earth. There was a lot more land, too. That's, I, I believe that to be very true. I believe that's true. The, the land mass, the earth, the world that then was, Peter tells us, the world that then was, was destroyed by the flood. So it's very possible and likely that the waters that were in the reservoirs beneath the crust of the earth the bowels of the earth that burst forth on that day. Uh, those waters are what helped cover the planet. The rains came from the vapor canopy, if you want to call it that, and brought that. How all that stuff happened, there's some interesting theories, and I don't want to bore you with that detail, so I won't, but uh, if you like that stuff, you can talk to me afterwards. Very interesting things about our asteroid belt and why the asteroids are there, there's this suspicion of a planet that has blown up, and when that planet blew up, uh, what could have transpired, why are there meteors, uh, impact cones and calderas on our moon, where did those come from? Some of them are very large, where did those come from? Uh, why is it on, I think it's on Mars, that the majority of the meteor impacts are on one side of the planet, one hemisphere of the planet, not the other. Something blew up and pelted that planet on one side, and its rotation is very slow compared to the Earth's. So there's some interesting things. And had a meteor come through, it would have collapsed the vapor canopy. It could have crushed and opened up the crust. Therefore, the waters burst forth, and you'd have some answers. I mean, it's, it's possible. These are theories, but it's possible. Anyway, uh, all that to say, uh, God called God called Noah to build a boat. Some of you probably think, man, BB, he's way out there. <laughs> I just want you to know, I, I, it happened. It's recorded for us. And God did it somehow. We may not know, and you, like me, may be the one who on that day when we were in heaven would say, um, so could we check out the video <laughs> on how you did that? And uh, there's going to be some fascinating information that we're going to have discovered. I'm, I'm I'm very excited about uh, sitting with God 
and saying, all right, Lord, lay it out for me. Have, have your deal. That's, that's, that probably won't be the first question I ask. I'm going to ask him about Jesus, but I bet he has some thought with a really good idea. Have you, have you ever wondered how you smell? I mean, those are really good ideas. How many of you appreciate your taste buds? <laughs> how those work? I want to know how that stuff works. I think that's cool. What a great idea. I mean, why does bacon smell good and and taste good? Uh, let me read from verse 13, again in chapter 6, and then we'll dive into uh, chapter 7. It says, And God said, uh, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now it's significant that he says he will destroy the earth. And then Peter in the New Testament tells us the world that then was, was destroyed. So God said he was going to destroy, and Peter records for us that God did, in fact, destroy, just as he said he would. Okay? Uh, so, And I say that simply to say you can trust the word of God. You can trust God will do what he says he will do. All right. Uh, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. I just want you to know again this word pitch is translated everywhere else in Scripture. This Hebrew word where it's translated here pitch, everywhere else it's translated atonement. Atonement. Recognizing that our atonement is a complete covering. There's not a sin in your life covered by the atoning work of Jesus Christ if your faith is in Christ. If your faith is not in Christ tonight, then your sin has not been atoned for. And if you want to come into the ark, so to speak, and know that your sin is covered and that you're going to pass through judgment and not be judged, just like Noah was not judged with the rest of the world, then you need to put your faith in what Jesus Christ did upon the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood for the atonement the full, complete covering of your life, past, present, and future. Outside of that, you stand condemned, right? Anybody on the outside of the ark? They're going to face the judgment. Does it make sense? Chuck. question was, repentance is part of salvation. That's a true statement. That's a true statement. Um, can someone be saved without repentance? I think that's the question. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Verse 13, then, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Repentance, I think, can, you know, our understanding of repentance, we look for the fruit. We want to see a change. Remember, there was a man that hung on the cross next to Jesus, and in front of his gaze, he was hurling insults just like the other thief, and they were both ridiculed and mocking Jesus. But one came to his senses, and his statement was, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus looked at him and said, Truly you will be 
be with me this day in paradise. Now, one would say, well, he's repented and he stopped early in sin. Um, you know, I, I had a guy tell me that he's a heretic because that you can be born again and be a disciple of Jesus. I mean, the scripture tells us Je Jesus uses the phrase, if you will be my disciple. If you will be my disciple. What does that tell you? You, you can be born again, but not a disciple. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, in fact, just turn in your Bibles. If anybody ever heard that question, uh, and I reiterated it, just turn in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 3. Again, we'll let Scripture answer this rather than me try and be eloquent and sound good. Now, First Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. No, let's begin in verse 9. It says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Okay? You are God's building. Now, I want you to let that allegory or metaphor saturate you for a moment. You are God's building. Okay? Verse 10 says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. So the Apostle Paul, as a master builder, he's laid the foundation. So he's talking to the church in Corinth, and they were once not believers, but Paul preached the gospel. He laid the foundation, and some believed. So the foundation was already laid, but now they're building on the foundation that was laid by Paul. Okay, does that make sense? So you became a follower of Jesus at some point. You became a believer at some point if your faith is in Christ. And that foundation was not a foundation you laid. Someone else laid that foundation in your life. But you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And now you are the builder. The person who led you to Christ, if you will, they're not building on your house, your, your foundation. You are. Does that make sense? Anybody get that picture? You now got some tools, and you're building. Now, it behooves us to build well, right? I mean, doesn't it make sense to build well? So what you do matters. Make sense? I mean, this, this is important. I mean, I used to build forts as a kid. I wouldn't recommend uh, my kid fort living in that. In the, even going in it for protection from the wind. <laughs> that could be dangerous for you. Probably not wrong, if not all of it be collapsing upon you. How you build matters, right? Okay. He says, For no other foundation, verse 11, can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the only foundation that works. And, verse 12, Now, if, anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. 
if anyone's work which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, the foundation can be laid, but no building stone, gold, silver. Because people do things, and this is the sad part, and this is a reality. Remember this. The two warnings in the New Testament, major warnings in the New Testament, false teacher, self-deception. Number one and number two. Warning. False teacher, self-deception. Here's the thing. We can self-deceive ourselves. We can say, well, I'm doing this good work over here, and I'm doing it for the sake of Christ. We think, so noble. Go get him. We, our heart, Jeremiah the prophet tells us our heart is the most deceitful amongst the members of our body. The most deceitful. The Bible tells us Word of God is living and active. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. The, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the bone and the marrow, and it is the discerner of the motives and intents of the heart. How do I know if this is about me? If it's about Jesus, I go to the Word of God, I look in the mirror, and the mirror will reflect the condition of my heart. And it will tell me, if I'm listening, it will reveal to me, Dave, this is about you. This is about you. This is about you. <laughs> That's what I hear a lot. It's about me. Because we're egocentric. Me, me, me. Me, me, me. Me, 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 And it really is about us. And so, the answer to your question is, I think repentance obviously is a key piece. But there is an indicator that someone can have the foundation laid in their life and nothing is built on it. They themselves will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire. They'll have nothing to show for it. That is a wow moment. It's a wow moment. It's a challenge to all of us to build well. Lori. no work something I did something I did yeah and remember remember Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 I should have you guys quote it because it's one of our memory verses but uh, it is by grace you have been saved through faith like 
things through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You cannot add to the grace of God. Here's the thing. Any effort of yours to try and add to the grace of God is actually subtracting from the grace of God. That's a reality. And so, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. So, all that to say, uh, we come back to uh, Genesis chapter 6, and we see Moses, this, or excuse me, Noah, this man of faith, and he's instructed to build an ark. And the atonement, he's going to have protection. It's interesting that the pitch is on the inside. Anyone who builds a boat, you put the pitch on the outside to prevent water from breaking, seeping into any of the seams where the wood comes. So the question is, why would God have had Noah pitch it on the inside as well? I think that's an interesting question. And I believe, this is my personal belief, that we are going to find Noah's Ark. I believe that we will find Noah's Ark, and I believe it will be a testimony in these last days of the validity of the Word of God. And I think it will be a last-ditch effort for people to believe to be born again before the rapture of the church. I think, that, I think that's a viable probability. So God had him pitch it so that it would be preserved, so that it would not decay, and it will be available to be found. Anyway, that's hyperbole, and that's conjecture. So what made Noah a righteous man? Okay, great question. Great question. So remember, and this is this is a fascinating reality and a difficult piece for us, and it's a good question. What they they didn't have Jesus. What, let me say it this way: they didn't have what we understand as the incarnation, Jesus becoming man, but God the Son is eternal. So they had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right? Remember, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Adam, Adam was still alive when Noah's grandfather was born. That's, I mean, that's a reality too, right? I mean, so he walked with God in the garden. He saw God. I know. But tangibly, tangibly, do you think he may have communicated that? I'm pretty sure he did. Pretty sure he did. After the sin in the Garden of Eden, the disobedience, remember that God set up cherubim at the entrance to access to the Tree of Life. The Targum, which is the verbal teaching of the Hebrew rabbis that was translated into Arabic, we have the Targum, the Targumim. And in the Targumim, and very specifically the Targum of Jerusalem and the Targum of Jonathan, they give us their teaching and understanding of that translation. And that translation is that the cherubim were there because the Shekinah glory of God himself was there. In other words, God tabernacled above the cherubim, which we could see the pattern of that in the construction of the ark. They put the mercy seat where the two cherubs were in the expanse of the wing.
priest, the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies, the dress above the ark. We see it in the temple in the book of Revelation. The cherubim are there at the throne, in the throne room, and God resides above them, if you will. And so we would find that in the Targum of Jerusalem, in the Targum of Genesis, they describe that God himself is there, and it was there that Adam and Eve first had their sin atoned for when God slew animals and made coverings for them of skin. So the shedding of innocent blood. Now we come to the story of Cain and Abel, and it would be understood that Cain and Abel went in the process of time to make offerings there as well. God the Son above the cherubim making the offerings. How did Cain know his offering was not acceptable? There's dialogue. They're having conversations. God's there. Well, Abel, of course, we know died. He was slain. Slain? Slain? (laughs) Slain. He was like the past tense of the past tense of slain. He was killed. He was murdered. Now then, Cain, his descendants, they were destroyed at the, you know, at least his descendants were destroyed at the flood. We don't have the totality of that. We have parts of his lineage, but at the end of the day, they were wiped out. But all that to say, um, these stories certainly were there, and we know Enoch walked with God. That means something. They were, I mean, they were, there was a physical representation. We, anytime we see in the Old Testament where God shows up, quote unquote, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, in most cases, like the, you read the story of Gideon. Gideon had an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus before the incarnation. He had engagement with man. And there are many, what is known as Christophanies. Joshua. Joshua meets an angel of the Lord who's got a sword. And he says, are you with us or against us? And he says, neither. I'm the angel of the Lord. I'm the host of the armies of God. Well, just a Christophany. This is Jesus. And he's directing Joshua. (laughs) He's going to say, here's what you're going to do. Boom, 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 boom. So, Christophanies. There were encounters with God prior to the flood that we have account and record of. And so, they walked with God in various ways, in various times, in various... I mean, how did Enoch walk with God? What was that... Correlation. What did it look like? Did he have, were they buddy chum? Like, hey, Chris, stand up real quick. You know, they're going to walk in the garden together. You know, here we go. We're going to go strolling. And God's communicating. It very easily could have been that. Our understanding it right now, you did a good job. <laughs> Our understanding, like when we say, man, that guy's a man of God or that person's a woman of God, they walked with the Lord. So our understanding of that is probably very different certainly very different than what Adam's was. It's certainly very different than when Noah walked with God. Listen, God said to Noah, I want you to build an ark out of gopher wood. He wasn't just impressing that on his heart. Was it gopher wood or was it cane? Lord, I feel like you're telling me to. No. (laughs) We do that. Thank God the Spirit dwells in us and we have impressions upon our own heart. I think we use the Lord often a little too loosely. Uh, The Lord spoke to me. 
I think it was maybe expensive sometimes like that. I think we're supposed to go to the dark side today. <laughs> I think you were just hungry. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes we take things out of context, but we, we would say, I feel the Lord impressed upon me. I would say this with this morning's message. God began to, to speak to me on Monday morning at 5 a.m. in the morning. I knew God was stirring me. And so this morning's message was what he said. Now, here's the crazy thing. Um, that encounter they had, they had a, uh, he had, and a number of them had an understanding of who God was and some of them walked away. But this is, this is the part that's very interesting to me. Why was God so grieved that he was going to destroy all flesh? I mean, if it was a small number of people, and a small number of people are following him, you, you, why are you grieved about that? Why would you relent? Why would you destroy them? But if there was 10 trillion, and none of them had any inclination towards the Lord, there was wickedness, evil, violence, and all corruption, and all of those things, and there's only one righteous, you can see where he would relent. I mean, think about the ratio, one out of 10 trillion. 10 trillion is such a massive number, your brain can't comprehend it. Neither can mine. It's too big. Until you talk about the national debt. But that's another, we won't go there without it. It's a big number. I mean, a billion is a big number. only telling you what the Word of God says. Yes. So the answer, the answer to your question is, are you going to tell me? And the answer is yes. I'm going to tell you that that is exactly what the Word of God says. Well, it, it, would, it would... But here's the thing. People can learn. It puts into perspective when Jesus said, wide is the way and broad is the gate that leads to death and destruction. And many enter through it. Narrow is the door. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few find it. It puts those perspectives in. No. In fact, it's very interesting that you should even mention narrow is the gate, reiterating what I just said. The gate, Jesus said, I am the gate, right? If you read the story of Ruth, you'll put, it'll put into perspective what happens at the gate. And what is going on at the gate is justice. Justice is occurring, and judicial activities happen at the gate of every city. And so Jesus, using that vernacular, says, I am the gate, and I am the gate, and justice will be meted out here. I am the just God, and I will administrate justice. And so if there's faith, the just shall live by faith. And so if there's faith expressed, yes, but here, all flesh corrupts. All flesh. Listen. Lest we think there's any good in us. There's not. The Bible says there is none good. No, not Noah found grace 
from the Lord. You and I have found grace from the Lord. It's the grace of God. It's it's so fascinating. there's nothing, he gets nothing out of it. It, Does God need you or me? He does not. He's God. It's like uh, when I make the statement, there's things that God cannot do. People are like, oh, you you can't be God if he can't do things. Well, God can't learn. Because he knows everything. He can't learn. He's not like, tell God a joke. I got a joke for you, God. And he's like, go ahead. <laughs> he knows the answer. He knows the punchline. I mean, the, so the, the point I'm making is God is all-knowing. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He doesn't need us. It is for his delight. And why? He's not egocentric. It's not like, ooh, Sarah, I want your faith. No. He says, Sarah, I want to give you me because I'm good. who wants to give himself away. That's that's fascinating. It's not about him. We don't don't serve an egocentric God. I can't wait for eternity where everyone just worships me all day long. He's not. No. He says, I want you to share in the perfection because it's good. It's just good. I want you to be a part of it. I want you to have it. I want you to experience it. I want you. So much so that he was willing. This is Romans tells us that Adam was a type of the one to come. Here's Romans 5 14. He's a type. Well, here, let's just turn in your Bibles. And we'll end with this. I, I, we didn't get very far in this. in Genesis 1. Okay. Uh, come prepared next week with Romans. Er, uh, come prepared next week for uh, Genesis 7. So Romans 5. I want to say it's Romans 5, 14 maybe. Anybody? Yeah. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Jesus. How? How is Adam a type of Jesus? When we know that Adam failed in the garden, saw that the fruit was good, desirable to have knowledge, and they they caved in to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Jesus, in the temptation in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, he didn't fail with the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. They're victorious. They're not types. That's like an anti-type, if you will. So how is he a type? Think about this for a minute. Adam did not consider 
his former estate that identified with his bride and took on sin. He took the fruit and he ate it. Jesus did not consider his former estate. So that he could have a bride, you and me. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He did not consider his former estate. Jesus took on flesh for eternity. The glory that he had before is, is modified because he took on flesh. He took on he became a man and he was resurrected a man. The Bible tells us there is one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ didn't consider his former estate. Philippians chapter 2 tells us who being the very nature God, who being God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God humbled himself and took on the appearance as a man. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? He identified with his bride that he might atone for her. That's you and me. Exactly. So, we ha- I mean, I don't even know how that became that. But it, all, that, all that to say, um, wow, we covered a spectrum tonight. Um, Faith is not in Jesus Christ. And I know I know most of you, some of you I don't know well, um, you may be here tonight and your faith is not in Christ. It should be alarming to you to recognize if your faith isn't in Jesus that you stand condemned in your sin. You cannot atone for your own sin. And just so you know that you're a sinner and you're in good company, because we're all sinners, as tragic as that is, it's true, we're all sinners. You inherited your sin nature from Adam, our great, 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 long one, grandfather. We are of his lineage. Included. How old are you now, Elijah? Ten years old. Ten years old. Do you ever disobey your dad? Wait, let me not. Let, don't answer that question. Chris, does he ever disobey? <laughs> Maybe once or twice. Okay, so the idea there is we're all guilty now of transgression. We've become transgressors of the law. Now, the law initially would just be the Ten Commandments, and if you think you're doing pretty good, just open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 would be the one to start off and begin to read the Ten Commandments.
and you say, how you doing? And the person says, no, no, I'm doing good. Give it a shot. No, no, no. And it gets to, that's right, not very far away. <laughs> Have you ever exaggerated? All right. If you say no, you just exaggerated, so you're a liar now. <laughs> Does that make sense? So we fail. We're all guilty. We are transgressors. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Therefore, you cannot atone for your own sin because you're not a sufficient sacrifice because your genes and your blood is already contaminated. Why? You ever wonder why at Christmas we sing in Silent Night, Round Yon Virgin, Mother and Child? Why did Messiah have to be born of a virgin? could not be of the seed of Adam because it had to be, the Messiah had to be without spot or wrinkle. It had to be, you guys are good to go. Bless you, God bless you. <laughs> you didn't even need my permission to go there. <laughs> we love you. We'll see you soon. Uh, the, the point is, the bloodline had to be without spot or wrinkle. That same word, perfect, in his genesis if you will. So Jesus is the sufficient seed. He is the sacrifice that works. And he shed his blood upon the cross for the remission of all mankind. He died for the sins of the world. John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God that what? Takes away the sin of the world. Okay. So he is the sufficient sacrifice. He died once for all. Okay. So here's the thing. If your faith isn't in what he did for you, then you will stand, and it, it's going to be something like this. We're, when we end up in heaven, we'll be standing there, and some guy, I have no idea what it's going to be like in all reality, but something to the effect, why should I allow you into my kingdom? Do you trust in Jesus? He'll know if that's true and genuine. My sin won't be accounted against me, and Jesus will be my advocate, and I will I will be in to come in and take his seat. If you don't have faith in Christ, you stand there like, hey, my God, remember me? <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe I should tell you this. <laughs> uh, I was pretty good. Remember that time? Remember? Okay. I knew Chris. He loved me. Did that happen? My wife, she knows the Lord. She, she, I mean, she knows you. No, it's not that way. You, you, if you stand, there's no defense. You have, you'll be without excuse tonight. Without excuse. Why say that? Why say that? So with eyes closed, will you just bow your heads with me, real quick? I'm going to ask you a question. With eyes closed, heads bowed. If you're here tonight and you realize. sin is forgiven, and you want to know that your name is written in God's book of life, that you are born again, your faith is in Jesus, and he will stand in your place so that you can have eternity with God. It will include repentance at some point.
say, I'm going to turn away from my former way of living and my sinful life, and I want to live for Jesus. But tonight, it's will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Will you receive the grace of God? If that's you and you would like to be included in the body tonight, not worrying about the person on your right or the left, if that's you and you just want to say yes to Jesus, would you indicate that to me? My eyes are open. Everybody else is okay. I see a couple of just sticking their hand up where you are and say, I want him to know tonight. Let me see. Anybody here? I see one hand. Anchor back. this room. Let's just make that declaration. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's say it together. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's say it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we declare your Lordship. We receive your forgiveness. We confess we're sinners and we need the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Cover us with your blood that we might be saved. Thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation. Thank you for your love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A substitutionary death, a death that each of us deserved, he died for us. Lord, we love you, and we ask your blessing and benediction for these two that have recommitted their lives. I pray, God, for a close and intimate relationship with you, that it would be beyond just, I got my ticket punched and I'm going to heaven, but they would realize that the foundation that has been laid is Jesus Christ, and they can begin to build afresh, and they would build